This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver. We're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Thanks for joining us this week in our educational adventure. We love being here every week with all of you. And also, as we ask every week, please tell a friend about us or text them an episode and Word of mouth pretty much is how we grow. And uh, if you remember while you're listening, please scroll down to the bottom of your app and hit the five-star rating or give us a review or both. Um, This week is our second episode in our Wuthering Heights series. Wuthering means strong winds, not withering, which means humiliating. It's so confusing. Although maybe both words would have worked. Right. (laughs) You know, either title would have worked. Uh, yeah, and, and I think everyone who first hears that title makes that mistake. Uh, I doubt if anyone except Emily Bronte even uses the word wuthering. Uh, I've not used it before. I know, me and so I'm um, blowing through the intro there. Ah, it's a pun. Uh, well, you know, we're famous for that. And I, I, I thought I'd try to breeze that one ah, by if I could. Another one gusted right through. <laughs> I guess we have to, this could get out of hand. I know. All right. Uh, okay. Plow ah. ahead. <laughs> oh, dear. We introduced the concept um, of the frame narrative. And if you weren't familiar with that, and we introduced our first unreliable narrator, Lockwood. He's a genteel, fashionable Englishman who has rented a house from a man who he calls a capital fellow. Uh, Heathcliff, who lives just a little bit up the road, is in a neighboring estate. And as any lodger might be expected to do, he chooses to visit his landlord, ends up spending the night at Wuthering Heights. It's less than a perfectly (laughs) hospitable stay. He's basically run off by his dreams or a ghost. We're really not sure which it is. And the dogs. Yes. And at the end of the chapter, uh, end of chapter three, he's bumbling back across the moors through pits and mounds and swamps and clouds and snow back to his own rental lodging called Thrush Cross Grange. Thrush Grange. It's, there's it's a, lot a of... posh garden, but a difficult mouthful to say for yeah. sure. Well, in chapter four, he stumbles inside and he's met with his housekeeper, Nellie Dean. 
and she will become our second narrator. And she is just as, if not more, unreliable mm. than Lockwood, as we're going to find out for obvious reasons. He asks her how long she's lived in the house, and he basically wants the lowdown, the 411, the dish. He wants the tea, <laughs> British tea. <laughs> no. Not that kind of tea. Uh, And apparently, uh, she is more than willing to share that tea. And so we all settle in for Nellie's story, which she's the first one that made sense to me anyway, uh, which today we'll try to get through Chapter 9, maybe a bit into Chapter 10. Well, seriously, though, charting this book and keeping up with all the back and forth of time is probably the most difficult part. It's so confusing. For one thing, the first part of the book is a flashback. But even as a flashback, it jumps around all the time in the story, sometimes skipping even years. So Nellie is going to tell the story about this character who's ultimately going to be the main character, a man by the name of Heathcliff. She starts from the time that he shows up at Withering Heights until the present day, or the day Lockwood originally shows up at the house on that first day that you just referenced in Chapter 1. So the dates, the times, the ages, the names, they're all confusing the whole way through the book. In fact, the first time I read this book, if I'm honest, which I will be, I was so lost. I printed out a family tree and a time chart and kept it with me the whole time, just trying to reference back and forth to all the dates and the names. So we'll try to walk you through the madness and save you the frustration of the, <laughs> the research. But I did want to include, then we put this on the website. Uh, there is a great website called withering-heights.com.uk that has a fabulous timeline. So if you are studying this book a little bit more deeper than we're doing on the podcast, I would encourage you Definitely to go to that website. Yeah, and I agree. This book, which has so many narratives, so many speakers, and so many frame stories, it's hard to keep all the players straight. So that's the challenge. But um, if I can ask, why do so many authors do things like these strange narrative styles? I mean, are these uh, things, are they trends or something of the time? Is there a thematic purpose? Well, yes, of course, and yes, they are trends, and they do come and go. But I will say, for a book that's been popular for so long, there's got to be something to it, and I really think that there is. And we can see this right here at the beginning of Chapter 4, but it's something we can follow through and keep in our minds over the course of the whole book. Because what Bronte is really constructing for us is this double narration technique. Now, let me say, doubles is everything in this book. It's everything. There's going to be two narrators. There's two houses. There's two love interests. There's two children. There's two Cathy's. There's basically two of everything the whole way through. So in the case of the narrators, what it does is it gives us this kind of double perspective. So on the one hand, we have an outside perspective. We're looking at it from Lockwood, and he comes in as a stranger He's fascinated with everything he sees. He kind of condescends. He almost looks down on them. But on the other hand, you have this narrator who we're going to see is extremely intimate with everything that goes on. That's why I'm going to say that she is a little bit more unreliable. She's infested. She has definite and strong opinions about how things should be with the family that she's lived with her entire life and really feels that it's her family in some sense. So 
She's an outside observer because she's not a family member. She is a servant, and they clearly make that distinction. But we're also going to find that Nellie is meddlesome, (laughs) and she does alter events when she wants to. She keeps secrets. She tattles. She scolds. She provokes. She intercepts letters. She watches pots. Some say she alters events so radically that she's the provoker of some of the biggest problems in the whole book. They're her fault, but of course, all that's arguable. Some say she's motivated by a genuine love for the characters in the story. I've read some critics who genuinely think she's trying to move in and be the mistress of the house instead of a servant and tries to usurp the role of the mother of the little Catherine, which we'll see in the second section of the book next week. But wondering what in the world Nellie is about is something to have in your mind, and it's an unanswerable question. So I'm telling you right now, as you navigate the world, the withering world. <laughs> mm, alliteration. Wuthering, yes. not withering. The wuthering withering, world. The withering, world. Indeed. And I think I've said I wanted to say about the narrators. Uh, we've got the idea, but there's one more interesting function in this narrative style besides kind of going into the story intimately with Nellie, then pulling out of the story with Lockwood, taking a break from the intensity. But there's another interesting thing that I think we need to keep in mind as we read the story, because it's important to notice that there is not an omniscient narrator. Now, what do I mean by that? It means we never know what's going on in anyone's mind. We make judgments about people, about what they're doing, only based on what they do. We are never told what anyone is thinking. We have to guess. By doing this, Bronte really does a number on our hearts, and she plays around with our sympathies and who we end up sympathizing for during the story. We feel sorry for a character. We pity a certain character, but then we watch what they do and we back off. It's a book that's so psychological. Probably, literally, everyone in here has something going on mentally, I guess. I mean, like, like I know, but... <laughs> let me let me say this. Uh, the answer to that is yes, diagnosable. Uh, but we don't know about what anyone is thinking ever. <laughs> well, I have my favorite characters, which I'm sure are the ones uh, Emily wanted me to like. But even my favorite characters are not awesome people, especially in the first part of the book. That's true. And, but who does have a favorite character in the first book? <laughs> They're all bad. <laughs> Terrible. True, but uh, still in most movies or books, we do sympathize with the protagonist. Uh, I mean, in Of Mice and Men, we identified with George. And Fahrenheit 451, we identified with Guy Montag. And Lord of the Flies, it's Ralph. But in this book, um, I find myself identifying with one character, and then he or she goes too far. Too far. "Mm, (laughs) No, I don't like you anymore, or worse, you're out of your crazy mind. (laughs) Very true. And I wonder if that ultimately is what is going on with these original critics who, you know, they didn't like the book. Maybe that was the reason. I don't know. There's no doubt, and I think it's important to really establish that Heathcliff is Bronte's essential hero. I think that's a nice way to call him. And he's the central power of the book. 
It's not Kathy or any of the other characters. This book is all about Heathcliff, what happened to Heathcliff, and what he did with those things that happened to him. And here's your real literary moment. Heathcliff is what we call a Byronic hero. By, not <laughs> Bionic, but bro, Byronic. Right. So, uh, I mean, I assume that comes from Lord Byron. What is a Byronic hero? Yes, he created it. And some people say he was the Byronic hero. But it actually, talk about trends, was a popular trend at the time. And to be honest, it's been popular ever since. A Byronic hero is that guy, no mother ever wants her daughter to date. He has a distaste for social institutions. He won't conform to social norms. Usually really rich, but moody. Usually very attractive, but has this tormented, troubled past. Prone to self-criticism. Usually a loner. Often self-centered. Rejected from society possibly with self-destructive tendencies, and all the while, our hero. How sexy does that sound? (laughs) I would like to say this. Yes? This is the subtext of every Harlequin romance (laughs) ever written. It's what women love in stories. Only their love will be able to redeem this man. And um, Well, uh, the guy you just described sounds like Batman. (laughs) Uh, it, it does somewhat feed into that uh, stereotypical um, female fantasy. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Christy, but you know it is a thing. I've pointed that out. Uh, you know, that, that idea that the bad boy with uh, something noble inside that the girl is going to mine out and only her love can rescue this beautiful brute. Well, no, you're right. Uh, the troubled hero is a thing, no doubt. I told you no mothers like them, but the daughters often do, and Yes, Batman is a Byronic hero. There's a perfect <laughs> example there. But I don't think Heathcliff is uh, in a lot of ways like Batman. But we'll we'll go on from there and go back to our story. Although I don't want to summarize this block. I mean, I don't want to summarize this book. Let me say it right. It's not possible. Uh, but we do need to hit on a few things. Because Emily has just not made understanding who's who very easy for us. I so can I, testify to that. <laughs> so I do want to kind of clarify some of the early Earnshaw family. It's not a super wealthy family, but it's, of course, wealthy enough to have this estate. Mr. Earnshaw is a gentleman farmer. He and his wife have two children, Catherine and Henley. They're six years apart. Henley's the oldest. Nellie's mother is their nurse, Henley's nurse, and Nellie herself is Henley's age, and because she's the daughter of Henley's nurse, she's around all the time and just grows up helping out. Well, one day, Mr. Earnshaw goes on a business trip and asks his kids what gift they want him to bring, as dads often do. Henley asks for a fiddle. Catherine wants a whip. When Mr. Earnshaw gets back, Three days later, he brings home a surprise. A dirty, black-haired orphan child that he found on the street a year older than Kathy. Now, I need to point out, Kathy's eight. Earnshaw is 14, as in Henley. Earnshaw is 14. And Heathcliff is a year older than Kathy. Nobody is happy about this. The mom isn't happy. The two kids aren't happy. Kathy's all mad because when he picked up Heathcliff, he lost her whip. (laughs) 
they didn't get their prizes. I know. Uh, I want to point this out. This was really important to me. It's unusual to notice that Heathcliff does not have a last name. He's just Heathcliff, a nobody and no identity and he, no roots and, and all the things that make you somebody in this period of English history. Uh, he also was never adopted into the family. He's never an Earnshaw, and he's the only character without a last name. Well, you're exactly right. And exclusion and isolation are motifs that are going to go all the way through this book from beginning to end. In spite of not being adopted officially into the family, he's still a threat to Henley. And Henley hates Heathcliff from the very beginning. And his hatred and bitterness at Heathcliff's existence is just growing year by year. Who is this guy? He's moved into my house. He's a threat to my inheritance, my place in the world, my sister's affection, my father's affection. And in the beginning, there's a sense that we can kind of sympathize with Henley. However... Again, we're going to have to pull back that sympathy Mm -hmm. because Henley's cruel. He's abusive from the very beginning. He beats Heathcliff mercifully. And the text says that Heathcliff, and I quote, would stand Henley's blows without winking or shedding a tear. And remember, he's little. This abuse makes Mr. Earnshaw angry at Henley. But instead of reining Henley in, he just indulges Heathcliff more And that makes Henley all the more abusive, all the more bitter and cruel because he believes, maybe correctly, that his father likes Heathcliff better than himself. Well, Mrs. Earnshaw, and this happens a lot in this book, she dies. There's a lot of death. (laughs) Yeah. Two years after Heathcliff shows up, but now Heathcliff is left with only Mr. Earnshaw and Kathy between him and Henley. Yeah, and to make Henley even more jealous, the next year, Mr. Earnshaw actually sends Henley away to school uh, because he's so cruel. And there's simply no peace in the home. So in a sense, Henley literally gets kicked out of his house over this new kid that his dad has moved into the home. And the text establishes early on how hideous of a person Henley is, but... Our introduction to Catherine doesn't leave her looking perfect either. Oh, no. No one would claim. Mm. Well, Catherine would claim she's perfect, but that's. Of course. So (laughs) much to say about her. She's a brat from the get-go. Nellie says she throws fits sometimes 50 times a day. Wow. She wants what she wants, and she escalates until she gets what she wants. So you have that extremity. But on the other side, Nellie admits that she could be fun. This is the quote. Her spirits were always high, watermark, her tongue always going, signing, laughing, and plaguing everybody who would not do the same. A wild wick slip she was, but she had the bonniest eyes, the sweetest smile, and the lightest foot in the parish, and she made people believe she never did anything out of malice to hurt them. And of course, this is how we identify with this book we've all met this person Mm -hmm. the difficult friend that can be fun to be with but when they don't get their way they make you miserable i think the term we use is high maintenance (laughs) that's one of the terms (laughs) one of the more polite terms i guess yeah uh but notice further i mean i found it very interesting that uh, the next highlights that Catherine would be cruel enough to make someone cry but then somehow stick with them Until by the end of the conversation, they were comforting her for what their crying did to upset her. In other words, she never did anything wrong. If she hurt you, 
Before you were done talking about it, you found yourself apologizing for having your feelings hurt and for hurting her feelings. Uh, And again, most of us have met this person in real life. There's a term we may get into called gaslighting. What is that? You make... Them guilty what you of? Well, gaslighting is where you try to purposely re-alter uh, or alter in the first place other people's understanding of reality to your advantage. Yes, but all this time, while all this is going on on one side, Heathcliff and Catherine get closer and closer. They're driven to the moors first by Henley, but even after Henley's gone, there's another cruel person in their life. That's Joseph that religious servant, and he just bludgeons them all the time with his religion, and they're able to run away from him, and they escape him into the moors, and there's that bonding experience. I do want to point out, though, that although Henley is the abusive one, there are a couple of examples where Heathcliff gives back to Henley as much as he gives. So these are the days, the childhood days of glory of these kids running on the moors, escaping the troubles, and these are the golden years of their childhood. The turbulence is there, but for the most part, as they recollect it, it seems later on in life, this is their happy childhood, and this is going to go on until Mr. Earnshaw passes away, not all that many years after his wife, and he dies with both Kathy and Heathcliff with him. It's described that there's a stormy and wild and windy night. Of course, everything in this book seems to happen when it's it's stormy, wild, and windy. Very symbolic. But Mr. Earnshaw dies with both children near him, and he's there stroking Catherine's hair. And it says that the two children just cry and cry together. The death sequence is actually described very strangely, because I want to quote it. It says this, Heaven the children talking and crying so sweetly together. I don't know that I understand what's meant by that strange (laughs) expression. (laughs) Well, whatever it means, um, heaven is short-lived. When we get to chapter 6, Henley's back from college for the funeral, and he brings back with him a wife, a woman named Frances, who is a uh, silly and ridiculous person and just thinks Henley is the most sophisticated gentleman in the world. (laughs) Henley is now the master of Wuthering Heights, and uh, he asserts his dominance over Heathcliff, punishing him for everything he perceived Heathcliff stole from him during uh, his childhood. And he deprives Heathcliff of his education and forces him to work uh, with the other servants as a, as a common laborer. And Joseph abuses Heathcliff, too, who is a teenager at this point. He thrashes Heathcliff till his arms ache. And... Nothing at Wuthering Heights is not painful for Heathcliff. And I know I just used a double negative there, but <laughs> but I want to emphasize how cruel this place is for this orphan child. He's made to feel like the other. I mean, Kathy is the only one who loves him, and she's pretty abandoned, too. So their bond uh, perpetuates with all the running away from trouble, which, which is what they do together. They run to the moors, this wild place in nature, which is a sanctuary for them. And it, it looks like this is how life is going to be until one day Heathcliff and Catherine stumble into a place that will change the direction of their lives. They look through the window into a place called Thrushcross Grange. And here we go, seeing Emily Bronte getting symbolic on us again. First of all, we need to go back and look at how she uses geography to reflect certain ideas. So 
Withering Heights is this place on the hill. It's open to all the winds and the violent throes of nature. It's full of passion. It's sturdy. It's fierce. It's primal. And that's just like the people that are coming out of this place. But then we're going to have Thrush Crash Grange, and that's the very opposite. It's tame. It's refined. The gardens are well taken care of. It's in the valley. But the people are not sturdy, we're going to see there. The people that live there, who we're going to meet now, the Lintons. They're nice. They're very sophisticated. There's a wealthy couple, and they have two nice, overprotected, sophisticated children, Edgar and Isabella. At the time that we're going to jump into their lives right now, and this is what I mean, you have to kind of keep it straight, Kathy's going to be 12. That makes Isabella 11, who's a year younger than her. Heathcliff, 13, who's a year older than Kathy. You also need to notice uh, that Kathy and Heathcliff are looking at their neighbors through a window. Now, windows are interesting things. They're symbols in a lot of books. And Bronte is using a lot of windows in her book in a very traditional way, the way people use symbols a lot. In, fr- in the beginning of the book, we saw that Catherine, the ghost, there was an incident with her at the window. Now we're going to see these two looking through a window. Windows provide views of the world that are very different. And Heathcliff and Catherine are going to look into the world that is so different than anything they've ever known. It's beautiful. Everything is red and white, the colors of love and innocence. There are silver chains and pretty curtains. Catherine and Heathcliff are mesmerized and they laugh at Edgar and Isabella because they're fighting. They can't possibly have anyone in this world, a world so beautiful, could fight. They don't even fight. Well, the Lintons hear Catherine and Heathcliff laugh. They get scared. They run off crying for adults. And when this happens, Catherine falls off the wall overlooking the garden into the garden and gets attacked by a dog. Hmm. (laughs) As it turns out, the parents come and they find this little girl, Catherine. She's dirty, but they kind of recognize her for who she is and And all of their sophistication, they're totally appalled that this beautiful neighbor girl is allowed to run around like a feral animal. So they presume it upon themselves to just keep her. It's a little strange, but you know that Henley really isn't a great guardian. You can't imagine him caring. (laughs) I think that's an understatement. He's not very attentive to anything. No. (laughs) Well, Catherine ends up living with the Lentons. She's there for five weeks. Before she goes back, to Wuthering Heights. And while she's there, she learns to enjoy the good life. She learns the benefits of cleaning up, being pretty, having fancy food, having people adore her. Ah, you know, it it, it seems Catherine finds out that she likes nice things. Who, Who knew? Who knew? And so she does. It doesn't seem she gave much thought to Heathcliff at all. For five weeks, and he was left that night just to wander back by himself and be alone. For the next five weeks, I would like to add that. I mean, that's amazing. Uh, that, of course, is one of the primary characteristics of, of her personality. She never seems to give a thought to anyone outside of herself. And uh, it's as if she cannot possibly even see outside of herself. It's just her in her own world, navigating and circling and orbiting her own head. True. And really from this point on, Heathcliff's relationship with Catherine is changed. 
when she comes back five weeks later, the first thing that Kathy does is laugh at him for being dirty. Hmm. Well, she makes him feel shame. And that is something that we've not seen her do in the beginning of the book. She's found better people. And when she looks at him, she laughs. He's endured rejection from every other relationship. But this is the one that seems to crush him. Uh, And I find myself sympathizing with Heathcliff at at this point. And there's this conversation uh, between him and Nellie. And Nellie says, make haste, Heathcliff. The kitchen is so comfortable and Joseph is upstairs. Make haste and let me dress you smart before Miss Kathy comes out. And then you can sit together with a whole heart to yourselves and have a long chatter till bedtime. So he does this and Nellie leaves out some cake for them to eat. But Kathy never comes down to visit him. I mean, uh, Edgar and Isabella are coming the next day and she's obsessed with that. In the morning, she looks at Nellie and says, Nellie, make me decent. I'm going to be good. Um, Brene Brown, the famous psychologist who specializes in vulnerability and shame, has famously said this. We like to quote, shame is the swamp land of the soul. Uh, And of course, I mean, that's a great Bronte metaphor. Heathcliff is in the swamp land of his soul in the moors. I know. Make me decent, Nellie. I'm going to be good. I mean, it just breaks my heart. The whole conversation is gut-wrenching as Heathcliff talks to Nellie. And, of course, Catherine has made all of this Heathcliff's fault. Of course. And before the end of it, she's crying for how he's made her feel. And Nellie, in order to kind of make it all go away, tells Heathcliff to go up and kiss Catherine, make peace with her. And she says this to him. And it's sweet. Gary, read this passage between Nellie and Heathcliff. It starts with, Edgar Linton shall look quite a doll besides you, and then he does. You're younger, and yet I'll be bound you are taller and t- twice as broad across the shoulders. You can knock him down a twinkling. Don't you feel you could? Heathcliff's face brightened a moment, then it was overcast afresh, and he sighed. But Nellie, if I knocked him down 20 times, that wouldn't make him less handsome or me more so. I wish I had light hair and a fair skin and was dressed and behaved as well and had a chance of being as rich as he will be. And cried for mama at every turn, I added, and trembled if a country lad heaved his fist against you and sat at home all day for a shower of rain. Oh, Heathcliff, you were showing a poor spirit. Come to the glass, and I'll let you see what you should wish. And glass, think of mirrors, think of windows. Mm -hmm. Do you mark those two lines between your eyes and those thick brows that instead of rising arced, sink in the middle, and that couple of black fiends who deeply buried, who never opened their windows boldly, but lurk, glinting under them like devil spies? Wish and learn to smooth away the surly wrinkles, to raise your lids frankly and change the fiends to confident, innocent angels, suspecting and doubting nothing, and always seeing friends where they are not sure of foes. Don't get the expression of a vicious cut that appears to know the kicks it gets are, at des- are its dessert, and yet hates all the world as well as the kicker for what it suffers. In other words, I must wish for Edgar Linton's great blue eyes and even forehead replied, I do, and that won't help me to them. A good heart will help you to a bonny face, my lad, I continued. 
If you were a regular black and a bad one will turn the bonniest into something worse than ugly. And now that we've done washing and combing and sulking, tell me whether you don't think yourself rather handsome. I'll tell you I do. You're fit for a prince in disguise. Who knows, but your father was the emperor of China and your mother an Indian queen, each of them able to buy up with one week's income Withering Heights and Thrushcross Grange together. And you were kidnapped by wicked sailors and brought to England. Were I in your place, I would frame high notions of my birth and the thoughts of what I should give me courage and dignity to support the oppressions of a little farmer. So I chattered on. And Heathcliff gradually lost his frown and began to look quite pleasant, when all at once our conversation was interrupted by a rumbling sound moving up the road and entering the court. He ran to the window, and I to the door, just in time to behold the two Lintons descend from the family carriage, smothered in cloaks and furs, and the Earnshaws dismount from their horses. They often rode to church in winter. Catherine took a hand of each of the children and brought them into the house and set them before the fire, which quickly put color into their white faces. Notice the windows again. Heathcliff looks through the windows to the world of the Lintons, and we're going to see that he is not accepted in their world. Even though Heathcliff is clean, looks good, was wearing nice clothes, when the Lintons show up, Henley shoves him back with a sudden thrust and tells Joseph to haul him off. And of course he tries, but not before Edgar makes fun of Heathcliff's long hair and compares him to an animal. Hmm. Yeah, that's not well received by by no. Heathcliff, and uh, who in some ways has been raised like an animal, and and he struggles with shame over that very issue and. Uh, Heathcliff picks up a bowl of hot applesauce of all weapons <laughs> and throws it in Edgar's face. And uh, violent action uh, reacts to violent language. And Heathcliff is young and he is injured. But this quote of his at the end of the night, after he's been locked away, really stands out. And Heathcliff says this, and it's really interesting. I'm trying to settle how I shall pay Henley back. I don't care how long I wait, if only I can do it at last. I hope he will not die before I do. I know, and Nellie responds to that. For shame, Heathcliff, it's for God to punish wicked people. We should learn to forgive. And Heathcliff has this reply, and I think is so fascinating. He said, no, God won't have the satisfaction that I shall. Uh, uh, that's interesting. I only wish I knew the best way. Let me alone and I'll plan it out. While I'm thinking of that, I don't feel pain. So you see Heathcliff is managing his pain by numbing it through plotting revenge. Well, of course, revenge is something we'll talk about later. And it's a huge thing. And of course, Bronte knows that this little bit at the end of chapter seven is so intense In fact, it's so intense, it's here that she's going to pull the readers out of the narrative and she injects Lockwood in. It's a little jolting because you kind of have to figure out, oh, okay, I'm back with this conversation between these two people. And it reminds us that we're distant. This is not our lives. She also dates the book here. She says this, the summer of 1778, nearly 23 years ago. 
lots of people for a long time thought she was just making up dates and times to randomly suit herself. But it's really cool that everything is accurate and you can plot it out month by month if you want to take the time to do so. And of course, you know, people have. (laughs) In June of 1778, where the story begins in chapter 8, we're going to see Harriton Earnshaw is born. So Henley, age 20, with his wife, Frances, age 18, have a baby named Harriton. At this time, because of the month's differentiation, Heathcliff and Catherine are actually both the same age. They're both 13. Now, remember, Isabella is always a year younger, so that dates her. Uh, And Edgar is two years older than Heathcliff, but he looks younger because he's smaller. And we'll see that kind of makes a difference at some points in the story. Well, from what I can tell, um, this is the only happy moment up to this point in the book. Uh, But this happy moment is extremely brief. All of a sudden, Francis is dead. Another death. Nellie is the primary caregiver of the new baby Harrington, and then all of a sudden Harrington is two years old. <laughs> no. So uh, Henley, by this time, has degraded himself past redemption into a, a savage and sullen, angry, alcoholic man, and all their servants have quit because Henley is so cruel. And uh, Catherine has turned fifteen, and she's the queen of the countryside, the most beautiful girl in the area, and she's living it up and. When she's around Heathcliff, she talks bad about Edgar. And when she's with Edgar, she talks bad about Heathcliff. Uh, There's nothing extremely unusual about that. (laughs) But uh, I'd say a girl playing two boys has, uh, you know, done that activity more than once in human history. Well, that's true. But as these things often go, that plan never works permanently. (laughs) Catherine thinks it will, though. She thinks she can have her cake and Eat it, too, as rarely uh, as that works. Well, we meant to explain that uh, that <laughs> idiom for, for some listeners who are not familiar with that American idea, that American idiom. Um, so when you make a cake, it's so pretty you want to hold on to it, and you want to admire this beautiful cake. And if you buy one that's fancy, it's expensive, and, but, but by its very definition, a cake is made to be eaten. So... You can't have your cake and eat it too. Instead, you've got to choose one or the other, but not both. And sometimes things are mutually exclusive. And this phrase harkens back to the whole idea that you want both. You don't want to choose. You want to make sure that you have both. And, um, you know, this scene clearly demonstrates that, uh, that she doesn't see that there's a world where she can't have her cake and eat it too. And in this case, she wants a relationship with Edgar that makes her rich and comfortable, but she also wants a relationship with Heathcliff. And this little incident in chapter eight really brings out the crazy in Catherine. Uh, Catherine has this plan. She wants Edgar to come over and basically tell her how awesome she is. But this plan goes bad because Heathcliff is supposed to work and he doesn't go. So she tries to run him off. And so it, it starts off by her insulting Heathcliff. Then when Edgar gets there, she wants to be alone with him, except Hindley has told Nellie not to leave the two alone. <laughs> Catherine gets mad at Nellie and literally physically pinches her to the point that she leaves a purple bruise mark on her arm. And uh, Nellie, and this is so borderline of Catherine, uh, she confronts her with this uh, physically hurting her, and Catherine just looks her in the face and says she didn't do it. 
<laughs> even though they saw her do it. I mean, she was going to make it not have happened because she didn't want to own up to it. And when Nellie won't say she didn't do it, Catherine literally slaps Nellie across the face so hard that both of her eyes fill with tears. And I mean, there's a lot of alternative reality creating going on here. It's so mean. And Linton just watches all of this. He interjects with this phrase, Catherine, love, Catherine. That's so, (laughs) he's just shocked. Clearly, he's never seen this side of her yet, but then it gets worse. Little Harrington. Remember, he's two, and he's always with Nellie. So Catherine picks up Harrington and shakes him furiously at this point. Well, Linton, like any normal person would, instinctively tries to protect the baby. He puts his hand on Catherine's hand, trying to get her to stop shaking the baby, and Catherine turns around and slaps him. Linton tells Catherine that he's leaving, and he leaves the room. Well, Catherine threatens self-harm if he does this, and she says this, I did nothing deliberately. Well, go if you please. Get away. And now I'll cry. I'll make myself sick. Then she just drops to the floor and turns on the tears. Mm, Turns on the drama, too. And uh, I love Nellie's commentary on this. She says, He possessed the power to depart as much as a cat possesses the power to leave a mouse half killed or a bird half eaten. And I thought, there will be no saving him. He's doomed and flies to his fate. I mean, Linton cannot stand up to Catherine. and She knows he can't. Catherine has the power in a relationship, uh, and it's not a reciprocal relationship. And to me, it's also interesting uh, that, that it's after this insanity that Edgar and Catherine confess their love to each other after this brutal exchange. And uh, I mean, it's at this moment that he asks to marry Catherine, which is a crazy response to this whole thing. And uh, he's accepted his role in a relationship, at least for the meantime. And uh, he wants Catherine, and he's willing to do what it takes to have her, at least for now. It's the old push-pull method. Ooh, well, I think these days, and we're talking if you're keeping track, it's the 5th to the 6th of August in 1780, narrate some of the most famous passages of this entire book. It starts off with this drama, with this incident. It ends in a marriage proposal, of course. And then again, it's a dark summer evening, Later on, Henley comes in drunk and abusive. The first thing he does is threaten to kill Nellie with a carving knife, which to me would be scandalous. But clearly she's gone down this road so often, she is definitely not scared of him. Remember, they're the same age. She's been raised with him. She's known him her entire life. So all of a sudden, he goes from assaulting Nellie, because she stands up to him, to assaulting his own son. And this is where it gets really serious, because push comes to shove literally, eventually taking Harriton up the stairs and he accidentally drops him over the banister, Hmm. possibly to his death on the hard floor. He likely would have died had not Heathcliff been around. Heathcliff catches him. He mumbles that it's a pity Henley just won't kill himself, but then walks to the barn. Nellie settles in the kitchen. Catherine comes in and here is the famous exchange. It's too long to read in full, so we'll kind of chop it up. And I'll set it up so we can read just the famous parts. But Catherine is going to tell Nellie that Linton has proposed. And she asks Nellie, uh, 
what she thinks, even though she's already given her reply. Nellie asks Catherine why she loves Edgar, to which she replies, well, because he's handsome and young and cheerful and rich and he loves her. Nellie says, well, those aren't very good reasons. And Catherine responds that she only wants to live in the present and Edgar is in the present. He's a very good choice. But the other side is she feels in her heart that it's wrong to do. And this, of course, will be the second time that Catherine has betrayed Heathcliff. The first time she betrayed him is when she ditched him for five weeks the night they fell off the wall. But this one's going to be even more serious. Well, that's one way of seeing it. Uh, But if the things she says are true, as she understands them to be, it's also true that she's making a choice to betray herself. And now she's done that twice. Yes, she recounts this unusual dream, and in this dream, Catherine goes to heaven. And when she gets there, she's miserable. And we see here all this language about wanting to live in the present, but heaven is timeless. There's no time in heaven. And I would say one way to see this is Catherine is maybe betraying her eternal self for some sort of present comfort, for convenient luxuries. And this is where I think we should start reading. Uh, I'll read Catherine's lines if you want to read Nellie's. If I were in heaven, Nellie, I should be extremely miserable. Because you're not fit to go there, I answered. All sinners would be miserable in heaven. But it's not for that. I dreamed once that I was there. I tell you, I won't hearken to your dreams, Miss Catherine. I'll go to bed, I interrupted again. She laughed and held me down, for I made a motion to leave by my chair. This is nothing. I was only going to say that heaven did not seem to be my home, and I broke my heart with weeping to come back to earth. And the angels were so angry that they flung me out into the middle of the heath at the top of Withering Heights, where I woke sobbing for joy. That will do to explain my secret as well as the other. I've no more business to marry Edgar Linton than I have to be in heaven. And if the wicked man in there had not brought Heathcliff so low, I shouldn't have thought of it. It would degrade me to marry Heathcliff now. So he shall never know how I love him. And that not because he's handsome, Nellie, but because he's more myself than I am. Whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same. And Linton's is as different as a moonbeam from lightning or frost from fire. Ere the speech ended, I became sensible of Heathcliff's presence. Having noticed a slight movement, I turned my head and saw him rise from the bench and steal out noiselessly. He had listened until he heard Catherine say it would degrade her to marry him, and then he stayed to hear no farther. My companion, sitting on the ground, was prevented by the back of the settle from remarking his presence or departure, but I started and bade her hush. And of course, this is one of those times that Nellie interjects herself into lives of these people. And there are many who think this is one of the cruelest things that Nellie could have ever done. She lets him go. She never talks about what happened. She never tells Catherine that Heathcliff was listening. She doesn't tell her that he left before she confessed that she loved him. I think it's important to understand that until we get to the end of kind of the same section a little bit later on, where I think we should pick up the reading again. And this, of course, uh, is Nellie again talking to Catherine. 
I see no reason that he should not know as well as you, I return, and if you are his choice, he'll be the most unfortunate creature that was ever born. As soon as you become Mrs. Linton, he loses friend and love and all. Have you considered how you'll bear the separation and how he'll bear to be quite deserted in the world? Because, Miss Catherine... He quite deserted? We separated? Who is to separate us, pray? They'll meet the fate of Milo. Not as long as I live, Ellen... For no mortal creature, every Linton on the face of the earth would melt into nothing before I could consent to forsake Heathcliff. Oh, that's not what I intend. That's not what I mean. I shouldn't be Mrs. Linton were such a price demanded. He'll be as much to me as he has been all his lifetime. Edgar must shake off his antipathy and tolerate him at least. He will when he learns my true feelings toward him. Nellie, I see now you think me a selfish wretch, but it never did it never strike you that if Heathcliff and I married, we should be beggars? Whereas if I marry Linton, I can aid Heathcliff to rise and place him out of my brother's power. With your husband's money, Miss Catherine, I ask, you'll find him not so pliable as you calculate upon. And though I'm hardly a judge, I think that's the worst motive you've given yet for being the wife of young Linton. It is not. It is the best. The others were the satisfaction of my whims, and for Edgar's sake, too, to satisfy him. This is for the sake of one who comprehends in his presence my feelings to Edgar and myself. I cannot express it. But surely you and everybody have a notion that there is or should be an existence of yours beyond you. What were the use of my creation if I was entirely contained here? My great miseries in this world have been Heathcliff's miseries, and I watched and felt each from the beginning. My great thought in living is himself. If all else perished and he remained, I should still continue to be. And if all else remained and he were annihilated, the universe would turn into a mighty stranger. I would not seem a part of it. My love for Lenten is like the foliage in the woods. Time will change it. I'm well aware as winter changes the trees. My love for Heathcliff resembles the eternal rock beneath, a source of little visible delight, but necessary. Nellie, I am Heathcliff. He's always always in my mind, not as a pleasure any more than I am always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. So don't talk of our separation again. It's impractical and... She paused and hid her face in the folds of my gown, but I jerked it forcibly away. I was out of patience with her folly. If I can make any sense of your nonsense, miss... It's only ghost convince me that you are ignorant of the duties you undertake in marrying or else that you are a wicked, unprincipled girl, but trouble me with no more secrets. I'll not promise to keep them. And of course, there's the weather. The storm is the worst to date. It's raining and winding and the storm rattles over the moors violently and there's thunder. And then Catherine goes outside looking for Heathcliff, but he's gone. Well, Nellie thinks she's crazy, and Nellie is absolutely incapable of understanding the intensity that that Catherine is expressing here. And honestly, I don't know very many Victorian women or even modern women who who would. Uh, you've got the rich guy sweetheart. Take that deal. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're definitely not getting a better one out of the guy who works in the barn. Well, Catherine's up the whole night. She sobs in the morning. She literally makes herself sick. 
she makes herself so sick that Mrs. Linton, Edgar's mother, decides to take her back to their house to help kind of, in her convalescence, restore her to health. Uh, And, of course, like everything, that turned out to be a really bad idea. Uh, They both caught whatever disease Catherine seemed to be carrying, and they died within a few (laughs) days of each other. So let me point out, the total number of deaths in these two families is now up to five. We've got Mr. and Mrs. Earnshaw, Francis, Henley's wife, and now Mr. and Mrs. Linton. I mean, this almost feels like one of those... Disney movies where they kill off all the parents? Do they do that in Disney movies? <laughs> they do all the time. Uh, but, of course, I can't imagine Disney ever producing uh, Wuthering Heights. Mm. But three years later, now Heathcliff is off, and Keith. three years later, Catherine and Edgar are going to get married in the little town of Gimmerton. And at this point, Edgar's thinking that he wins. So let's stop here with an age check. Catherine's 17, Edgar's 21. That makes Isabella 16 and Heathcliff 18, and it's March. In August, baby Kathy, Catherine's child, is going to be conceived. In September, which is the start of Chapter 10, Catherine's 18, Heathcliff is 19, Isabella's 18. Heathcliff, our Byronic hero, comes back to town. And here's a spoiler for next week. He's tall, good-looking, well-educated, but most importantly, rich. A plot twist. (laughs) Of course, what we see from this point onward in the story um, is the splitting. And it's evident even in the names. When Heathcliff comes back, he's not coming back to Catherine Earnshaw. He's coming back to Catherine Linton. She has a new life, and in in some ways she enjoys it. And, of course, uh, Edgar and Isabella give her everything she wants. And This quote is great. She seemed almost overfond of Mr. Linton, and even to his sister, she had plenty of affection. They were very attentive to her comfort, certainly. It was not the thorn bending to the honeysickles, but the honeysickles embracing the thorn. There were no mutual concessions. Hmm, so this is the new world of Catherine Linton. And uh, for both Heathcliff and Catherine, uh, their relationship represents a world that really is never coming back. I mean, the moors, the childhood freedom, the irresponsibility, and uh, they had embodied this for each other. And there's a lot going on here on a lot of fronts. And next week, we'll definitely unpack more of this. But for starters, here are two people that must shatter something. Demons, dreams, whatever from the past. And, And Heathcliff, in many ways, just can never do this. And we'll see that all the way until the end of the book, it's like this. Well, of course, Catherine can't either. Catherine will not be told no, not by any human on earth. And she will defy the very law of nature that you just can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have the eternal and the present. Joseph Campbell, the famous mythologist, says myths and fairies are similar kinds of things. They concern the primary laws of our nature. Bronte has given us a character who has betrayed herself and her best eternal friend, not once, but twice. Will the universe tell her no? Hmm. If it does, the universe will be the first (laughs) up to tell her no up to this point. I have to admit, um, I've been on Team Heathcliff. He's really had a rough, rough go of it. And Catherine seems to make out all right in the story. Well, that's true. Let's see if you still feel that way next week. (laughs) 
On that note, I think it's definitely past time to leave this world where chaos fights orders, storms fight calm, rocks clash with gardens, and the present fights the eternal and the past. Passion against practicality. Mm. Let's leave these exhausting withering heights. (laughs) We've tried our best to walk you through one of the most complex stories we've ever done, and I hope you've enjoyed it. We've certainly, I hope, given you something to think about this week. Well, on that note, be sure to stop by uh, any of our social media spots to say hello. Our Instagram page, Twitter, Facebook page, or our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this classic hit? Any suggestions for future books? Uh, any pictures you want us to feature on our feed? Uh, feel free to check in with us. Peace out. Peace out.